Good morning, and let me give you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Second Presbyterian Church of Greenville, South Carolina. It has been a real blessing to be here. And uh, I love a church that has the fingerprints of generations bearing testimony to Jesus. And that alone makes me glad to preach here. But it's been a wonderful time with your pastor and wife and with all of you. Uh, please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to speak today from Hebrews chapter 12 and two verses, the first and the second verse. Let me read Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God abides forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for taking the things of your own heart and through your spirit, writing them in a book for us and now you would, through the preaching of your word, write it upon our hearts in faith. Give us the spirit that we might attend to the word and that we might indeed behold Jesus and run our race. We pray in his name. Amen. Luke chapter 24 tells of two downcast disciples who were walking down the Emmaus Road a few days after Jesus had been crucified. And they were crushed in spirit by the disappointment of their hopes. And a third man came up alongside them on the road and asked them why they were so sad. And they said they had been followers of Jesus of Nazareth. But the religious, religious leaders had delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's Luke 24, 20 and 21. Now I find that many Christians today are like those downcast Emmaus Road disciples. Now, unlike them, we know a little bit more about the story. We know that was Easter Sunday. That was the first day of the resurrection. And we understand more about the, the saving realities of what Jesus had done. But we are often as frustrated and as downcast as they are. I find many Christians today are frustrated with a culture that seems to want to crucify Jesus all over again. In the media, in the schools, in the government, Christian truth and moral reality are being turned upside down and repudiated and scorned. We had hoped that he was going to redeem America, but America seems to want to crucify him. And that gets played out in our own experiences. We'd hoped for this or for that, and Christianity has been harder. We don't seem to be achieving the dreams we had at first. Well, the writer of Hebrews is ministering to another struggling group of Christians, these Jewish, these Hebrew Christians in the mid-60s in that first century, and they were paying a price for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were expelled from their culture, and they were looking for godly ways to influence that culture. And I think the, the advice that the writer gave them would be good advice that would help us today as well. Now, I want to point out three things from this passage beginning with the statement it makes regarding the context of the Christian life. 
the context of the Christian life. It's often said that context is the key to interpretation. So here's the question. What is the context in which you view yourself? Where do you see yourself set? I think often and maybe generally we we think of ourselves in terms of our relationship to contemporary culture or maybe to our workplace or maybe to the generation in which we associate ourselves. But the writer of Hebrews says it will help you to think of yourself a little differently. Christians should see themselves as surrounded, he says, by a great cloud of witnesses who bear testimony to faith in the Lord. He says, if you're a believer, it's true, you're in America in 2013, you're in mid-Georgia, you're of a certain class and all of those sorts of things. But the main way you should think of yourself is I now am a participant in the great work of the Christian church in history. And I am following in the footsteps of those who've gone before me. And and here he's thinking about the Old Testament saints. But we would would see the apostles and the early church and the heroes of our faith, some of them... uh, Entering into our own lives. This, he says, is the audience, as it were, before which you live. A great arena filled with the beloved of God, the faithful of all ages. And you see, now is the day when you happen to be on the track. You are running the race. They once were in the race. And, and one day you'll be in the stands. And if the Lord tarries, others will be on the field. We should be thinking about that gathering, that membership, that context in which we are living our lives. Now, when he speaks of this cloud of witnesses, he's looking back to the previous chapter. Our passage begins with therefore, and you know when you see a therefore, you should ask what it's there for. And when he speaks of a cloud of witnesses, the previous chapter is the the hall of heroes, where he he gives the examples of, of faith lived out in the Old Testament, and Abel, and Noah, and Moses, and Abraham, and all of those people. It's sometimes called the the Westminster Abbey of biblical faith. I don't know if you've ever been to Westminster Abbey, but there's tombs there, and many of them are great preachers and great Christians. And the difference here, according to the writer, is they're actually not dead, they're actually alive. It's true, you know. Moses is not dead, he's oh dead, he yet speaketh. And he, his spirit is on high with the Lord Jesus Christ and all our forebearers in the Christian faith and in the old covenant and the new covenant. They're in the stands cheering. Now, sometimes people will say, Pastor, do you, I think maybe the most common question I get is, will there be dogs in heaven? Um, I, but maybe a second one. I'm just going to leave that alone for right now. But uh, a second one, my answer is, dogs yes, cats no. But I'm joking. <laughs> It wouldn't be hell without cats. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, another question I get is, do you think the saints above have any idea what's going on here? And we're told here the answer is yes. Now, I think their perspective has been glorious. It's a, it's a holy perspective. And they're preoccupied with the Lord Jesus Christ. But we read here in the Bible that we are living our lives with an arena around us. And the saints above, the glorified spirits of our forebearers in, in biblical faith, are watching us and are cheering us on. That's what's being said here. John Owen writes, all the saints of the Bible stand looking on and are striving, encouraging us in our duty ready to testify unto our success with their applauses. They are a place about us to this end. We are compassed about with the entirety of the church before us. 
And so this is how you and I should think about our lives. You, if you're a Christian, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you've joined the church, you are now part of the noble company of the people of God. You are living in this world, but you're doing it to glorify God and to serve his kingdom through faith. And this is the context in which your life is being lived. You are being surrounded by those with whom you will spend eternity. And we should think that way. One of my favorites in the Bible is Jehoshaphat. I mean, just read about Jehoshaphat. I mean, it's thumbs up. And I'm going to meet him. Now, I'm most excited about Jesus. But I'm one with the saints who've gone before us. And I often refer to my children as my beloved children and dearly beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. In eternity, those who are younger than me, they will be my brethren, and we will spend all the ages in glory together. And so here's the question. See, this changes the way I think. Suddenly the opinion of the world about me is not that significant. And and if I'm looking at what group do I want to fit into, this is the group I want to fit into. I remember the day I turned 30. I no longer cared if I was cool anymore. That was a great day in my life. But I want to be cool with this crowd. I want them to say, you, you bear the marks of our band, of our assembly, of the ethos of what we believe in. These are the people I should be looking to for my fellowship. We should hear their voices. We want to conform to the pattern of their faith and not to the pattern of unbelief in our world. The context of the Christian life. Now that leads to our second point, which is the calling of the Christian life. We see here the context, but also the calling. And verse 1 concludes by telling us that God has marked out a race for each of us to run. God has laid out a course for our lives. There are places that we are to go. There are things that we are to do. There are people we're to know. There are challenges we are to face and confront. And and we don't know how that path goes. We know that in Christ it's leading to heaven. But we know that God has mapped it out. I, I sometimes say, I love myself and I have a wonderful plan for my life. It's called happiness. Smooth sailing all the time. That's what I want. And God loves me more than I love myself. He calls, his plan is called holiness, and he edits in all those trials that I would take out, and and I don't even want to know, frankly, that's what Jesus says, don't think about what tomorrow has. But I know that whatever the Lord, my sovereign God, who loves me and has proven his love to me by sending his son to die on the cross, whatever he lays before me, my calling is to meet it with a persevering faith that is worked out in godliness. That is the calling of my life. The circumstances are not that important. The calling is to run the race, he said, with endurance. The race he has set before us. That is my calling. Now, this metaphor of life as a race is used quite a lot in the New Testament. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, to run in such a way as to gain the prize, a crown that will last forever. And he describes his life, his own life, in similar terms. At the end of his life, writing to Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You know, I find one of the real privileges, one of the holy privileges of being a minister, is to be with Christian friends who are dying. 
And it's a very sweet time when they know they're going to the Lord. And I can say to them, my dear friend, today you're going to see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your race has run. And that which you've been looking forward to is about to happen. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And my life is to live through the circumstances God has given me. My calling to arrive on that day, having persevered to the end in faith. And so this is the image that the writer of Hebrews gives us. First, he tells us that the stands are packed with the saints of old. They're a cheering section. Uh, he, he tells us that we should pay attention to their testimony. We should heed the encouragement they give us. And go back and read through Hebrews 11. And you have Abel, and he reminds us that through faith in the blood of the Lamb, we will be accepted by God. That's the testimony we need to hear, and Abel gives us. And then Noah cries out and he says, yes, I lived in a world like you did, an evil world that's under God's judgment, but he made an ark of salvation for me. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. God saves his people even though he has wrath on sin. And there's Abraham and he's cheering on all those who are living by hoping for promises that have not yet come true. We're leading lives of expectation. Thank God this is not it. But there's a city with foundation whose architect and builder is God. And we're living on the promises. And Abraham says, I did too. And I got there. You're going to get there too. Just persevere in faith. And, and Moses cries out as one who forfeited his status and his favor in the world. He surrendered rank and riches in order that he would be numbered among the suffering people of God. Let me put it this way. Their, their attendance upon our race gives us a home field advantage. <laughs> we are playing the game with our friends in the crowd cheering us on and we should hear their cries. And so we conceive of our context and of our calling. Let me ask you, how do you conceive of the calling, the purpose uh, of your life? Is it to attain a certain standard of wealth? That would be a good thing, but it's not that sufficient a thing. I remember reading recently one of the corporate titans who I read when I was at the Wharton School. We studied him and he's made hundreds of millions now. Praise the Lord. I mean, to be a steward of wealth is a high calling. But they asked him, now that you're retired, what are you going to do with your life? And he says, I have resolved that I will never allow a glass of wine that costs less than a thousand dollars ever to pass my lips. I thought the poor, poor man to conceive of your life, that, that's it. That's what this has all been about. The boasting of what you have and what others don't. Is, don't make that the purpose of your life. Is it to achieve a certain position of influence and power? Is it to become popular or to enjoy maximum leisure time and fun? You see, these are the things our unbelieving society defines as the purpose of life. These are the things you should be giving your heart to. By the way, young people, don't dream the dreams that Hollywood wants you to dream. You see how the stories end. You see what a young Miley Cyrus becomes when she, uh, what Hannah Montana becomes when she gets on that track. Glory and fame and the things of the world. Don't dream those dreams. Dream the dreams of the kingdom of God. They're true. They're rich. They will bless you so much more. We should think of ourselves as this people of God running a race in this world surrounded by the saints of all ages, glorifying our God and serving that kingdom that will have no end and its glory will endure forever and ever. I don't know about you, but that's tremendously liberating to me. Tremendously liberating. 
that I am to persevere. Here's the purpose of my life. I am to persevere in all the various settings that God's going to place me in. Some of them are going to be good, some are going to be bad. I'm to hold fast my convictions. I'm to obey the Word of God, and I'm to display the grace of Jesus. I'm to have an interest in the spiritual well-being of others. I'm to grow as a Christian. I'm to glorify God through faith in all my seasons of life until I reach the end. You see, this is our victory, not worldly standards of success, but enduring to faith in the end. And I want to say, do not underestimate the power and the value today of that kind of Christian life. The world is looking for it. What did Paul say? The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The world hears a lot of talk from us evangelicals. Do they see power? Do do we live as if we believed it was true? that there is glory ahead, that our treasures are not here, but are in the age to come. Well, let me tell you, it's not an easy calling. And therefore, we need to train hard like an athlete. And the writer of Hebrews in verse 1 gives us our training instructions. I am to persevere in the race to the end. How am I to do that? He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, he speaks here of two things, starting with weights, uh, or some versions would put it as hindrances. In the ancient games, they would slim down so they could run faster. That word can mean excess body weight. They got rid of that. It also meant clothing. They actually ran without, without unadorned, and they took off everything that would keep them from running as fast and as well as they could, and an image is given to us. Whatever is in your life that is impeding or hindering or distracting your race of faith, you should lay it aside. You should set it apart. You should run the race of faith in Jesus as well as you can. Now that's a very helpful piece of guidance, I think. It helps us with any number of decisions about things in our lives. People will say, you know, Pastor, it's not technically a sin, so I can do it. I go, okay, but does that mean that you should do it? And we look at the, uh, the things that are in our lives. Is it hindering my spiritual progress? If it is, it should be discarded. I think, for instance, how many Christians today have just kind of mindlessly bought into the entertainment culture. And if other people are watching the show at work, they're watching it and they're just imbibing. In many cases, even if it's not filthy on the surface, underneath the surface it is. Some of our children's program is teaching disrespect, self-loathing, and all kinds. And and it's cute, it's funny, but we need to be discriminating and say, is this edifying our people? Uh, Are we reading lurid novels that will put filth into our minds? Uh, Are we engaging in hobbies, even if there's nothing wrong with them, but that's getting all of our attention. We have no time to be useful in our church, to be discipling our children, to be spending time with our wives and wives serving our husbands and families. If it's a hindrance, the Bible says, you'd be very wise if you let it go. If you desire to run the race with perseverance, each of us should look at the things in our lives and say, is this a hindrance or a help in my life of faith and discipleship to Jesus. Now, we turn then to the matter of sin, and the situation is more clear and more grave. The writer speaks of the sin which clings so closely. The sin which clings so closely. The idea that now your feet are being entangled. You're going to be brought down. You're going to be tripped up. You're going to be kept out of the race. 
Now, it warns us, it reminds us we need to think about sin far more soberly than we do. We don't tend to think about sin soberly unless it's a big sin. But every sin is deceitful and wants to lead us down a primrose path that will lead to greater sins. You know, sin never says, I'm going to now corrupt your, your character. I'm now going to place images or thoughts or attitudes in your heart that are going to permanently scar you. You know, we're often, we're, we're, we can be forgiven of our sins. Uh, and the Lord does forgive us our sins, and yet we're affected by them, and they matter. We should hate sin, and we should get rid of it from our lives. Think, for instance, about King David, how quickly and thoroughly he was tangled up in sin, and he was brought low. Uh, he was running the race so brilliantly, almost as no one had ever done before, and sin entangled him. Look, if King David can be tangled up in gross sexual sin and in murdering a friend because he gave his heart over to evil, that can happen to me. That can happen to you. Let us resolve that we will not be tangled up in sin. And again, the world needs to see that. Look, I'm always going to be a sinner until I go to glory. Until Jesus returns or until he gets there, I'm going to have sin issues in my life. But I'm at, I need to be at war with it. And particularly those that will really hurt myself, others, and disgrace the Lord. Let us flee temptation and oppose all sin. Now notice what kind of race that we run. It's not a short sprint. I was a football player. 40-yard dash was my best time. I got in the army. Suddenly it's two miles. That's a whole different race. And it's not the short sprint. It's not the brief enthusiasm. You know, most of us, particularly if like me, you're an adult convert. I so remember the, the excitement of my early days, and I was running as fast as I could. And what needs to happen is that needs to be converted to endurance and to character change. And it's the long run, and there's dips and there's valleys, and it seems to take detours sometimes. We must run with endurance. What Jesus said to the church in Thyatira should be true of us. I know your works, your love and faith and servants, and your patient endurance. Run the race, setting aside the hindrances, casting off sin, which will trip you up and take you down. Well, that leads to our third point, in, which is in verse 2. And it's the encouragement of our Christian life. First, the context. Secondly, the calling but here we have the encouragement. And I've often referred to Hebrews 12, 2 as the all-purpose verse of the Christian life. That's quite a statement, isn't it? And what I'm saying is there is no situation in life in which this verse is not good counsel. Because it says this, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, this is the encouragement that we need, and we need encouragement. We do fall. Sin does trip us, and we have to get back up. And the sins of others affect us. We see our culture turning into immorality and to perversity, and we need to be encouraged. And the encouragement is found here by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, who we read here is the source and the fountain of spiritual power. John Owen says this, that a constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. The more we behold the glory of Christ by faith now, 
the more spiritual and the more heavenly will be the state of our souls. The reason why the spiritual life decays and withers is because we fill our minds with other things. But when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and of his glory, those things are expelled and our spiritual life is revived. Well, I don't know about you, but I need that. I need my spiritual life revived. I need vigor, and it comes by looking to Jesus. Let me give you three ways in which we look to Jesus, and we are encouraged in the race of our lives. First is that Jesus Christ is the premier example of our faith. He is the best example set before us. This Greek word translated, I'm using the ESV, it says the founder of our faith. Probably the best translation would be the forerunner, the trailblazer. And everything that your faith in Christ causes you to do, my friend Jesus has done it before you. And he has blazed that trail and he has opened up a way. I like to envision it like climbing a mountain because that's hard and it seems dangerous. I look up, I don't think I can do it. My progress in the Christian life. But there I see Jesus going ahead of me. Now you go, well, he has certain advantages like deity. <laughs> you know, uh, incarnation, yes. But you see, now I can see where he put his hands and his feet and I go, oh, there's a trail. And so when I'm in a situation, I can do what he did in that situation. And when he was reviled, he reviled not. And I can honor God. I can do difficult things to praise God. And, and Jesus did that too. But not only did Jesus go ahead of me, and not only did he show me where to walk, he lets down a rope. That's a big help. And not only that, when I climb the rope where he did, he pulls on the rope. <laughs> and Jesus from heaven sends down the Holy Spirit. And he gives us the power, and we make our way up where we never thought. I mean, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you should be at a place now where you never thought you would be. But you see, what's exciting is you look upward and you go, wow, more character change, more faith, more godliness, more zeal for the Lord. And, oh, there's Jesus. He's up there. He's gone ahead of me. He's shown the way. Oh, and he's, there's the rope, the word of God. I'm going I'm to lay hold of it. He's going to pull me up. And Jesus is the great example of our faith. He is the trailblazer and the perfecter of our faith. Now, it's noteworthy that in saying this, the writer of Hebrews focuses on the ordeal of his cross. Because that's where Jesus' faith in God was most greatly put to the test. He underwent suffering, we read, and shame on the cross. And the writer of Hebrews was writing to Christians who were facing shame. Just as you are. If people learn what you believe, they're going to disgrace you. The evangelical movement today is being... Is, you know, I, I, recently I was talking to somebody. He said, years ago, if people found out you were a Christian, they may not like you, but they admired you. Now if people find out you're a Christian, they call you a hate speech person. And now that the shame and the contempt of the cross is being placed upon you. And so you go to college and you go, what's going to happen if people find out I'm a Christian? You're going to get shame and scorn, but the Lord Jesus endured it for you. And you can follow in his path. And he had, fascinating, it says, for the, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy of Jesus on the cross? Well, let me give you some, I think, instances of it. It was the joy of doing his Father's will and pleasing the Father in a difficult setting. You and I can follow his example. And you're at a workplace and you're living with integrity and maybe you miss promotion because of it. Or maybe you witness to a friend and they scorn you and you can say, Lord, what a joy that was. I don't like suffering. 
but that I should be counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Lord, I'm trying to obey you. I hope that you are pleased, and it gives me joy to do your will. And Jesus knew what was going to result from his death on the cross. He knew he was saving his people. He was purchasing a bride in glory forever and ever. And you have the joy when you live a godly life. When you set a Christian example, when your family in your neighborhood is an example of love, imperfectly, but grace and love and forgiveness and godliness lived out, you have the joy of knowing God's going to use this. I may never learn how he's going to use it, but he's going to use it. And I have the joy of knowing my witness. I was saved by the witness of a woman who will never know I was saved. I was a pagan 30-year-old, arrogant MBA student. Moving into a building, I carried some boxes for her, and she tried to witness to me, and I shut that down with my body language. And driving away, she, she yelled out, she, she called out of her car, if you're ever looking for a good church, go to 10th Presbyterian Church. And I always picture herself kind of thinking, oh, that was a lame witness. Oh, it'll never mean anything. I was saved by it. Because two months later, I remembered, and I was under conviction. I went to that church, I heard the gospel, I believed. And so you have the joy of knowing that God's going to use your obedience, your, your service to his kingdom, your godliness, your witness of the gospel. Jesus had that joy. He's not only the example of our faith, he's the object of our faith. We are running the race unto him. Literally, think of yourself, Jesus is waiting at the finish line. At the end of your life, God the Son, your Savior, is going to receive you. Psalm 23, he will anoint your head with oil. A table is prepared before you, but in the presence of your enemies, you will dwell forever in the house of the Lord. You are trusting in him. He is the one unto whom your faith is directed. And then thirdly, we fix our eyes on Jesus because he is actually the source of our faith. He's the great example of our faith, but he's the object of our faith. We're trusting in him, and we're doing it unto him, but he's the one who actually gives me the faith. I think this is where this translation, the author of our faith, is what it's getting at. My faith is not something that I did. It's something that Jesus gave to me by grace, and he worked faith in me, and he is still working faith. He not only was the author of my faith when I believed, he continues. He's the author of my persevering faith. What an encouragement that is. People say to me, Pastor, do you think you're going to heaven? I am going to heaven. I'm going to die and go to heaven. How do you, or unless Jesus comes back, they go, how, do you, how can you know that? Because I know whom I believe in. I know this. I have believed in Jesus. And he has promised that he's going to keep my faith. He is going to cause me to persevere. He is the author of my faith. And it is very encouraging to think about these things. Thomas Watson says, As the Spirit is at work in the heart, so Christ is at work in heaven. Christ is ever praying that the saint's grace may hold out. That prayer which Christ made for Peter was the copy of the prayer he now makes for you. I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. The Lord Jesus Christ, even now, is the author of your faith, of your running the race. And so be encouraged. Believe what the Bible says, not just about what he did, but about what he is doing and what he has promised to complete in the end. And the race will seem not so difficult, but a joy and a pleasure to run. Well, remember the Emmaus Road disciples, they were so downcast. They had hoped 
that Jesus was going to be a savior and they were downcast over how things turned out. I mentioned that a third man came up on the road and, and he asked them what they were talking about and they told him, if you know the story, that man was the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and he came up and what he did was he opened the Bible to them. He encouraged them by opening the scriptures and showing them his life, death, and resurrection and his victory over sin and the grave in the Bible. And here's what they said after he left. Did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened unto us the scriptures? Well, that's what we will find if our hearts grow cold, if we find ourselves discouraged in living as Christians. We, we should be helped by the context of the great cloud of witnesses. And friends, you need to know your calling is to run the race of faith with perseverance. That's, that's the calling of your life. It's going to look different in your life than in mine. A slightly different path, all going the same way, all according to the same path in the Bible. But if you will open up the Scriptures and you will seek out the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be encouraged in him. That you not only will persevere in the race, but you will be able to say what those downcast disciples said on the Emmaus Road. Did not our hearts burn within us as we looked to Jesus? As we considered the joy that he had saving us upon the cross. The, 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 the fulfillment of his salvation achieved for us. And we will rejoice with words of confident faith. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. For me he died. For me he lives. And everlasting life and light he freely gives. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, I would encourage through your word these dear people and I would pray for any who are here who do not know you, that they would see their need to know the Lord Jesus and to have this grace in their life, to have their sins forgiven by looking to him in faith. And those of us who have been brought to faith by your grace, Lord, let us run the race. Let's, let us look upon our lives biblically to see the nobility and the, 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 the glory that is being worked out in the lives of humble sinners like us, believing in Jesus and running the race of faith. And Father, would you bless this church? Would you cause Jesus to reveal himself through the word in such a way that they are not only encouraged, but their hearts burn within them with joy and gratitude for the great salvation you have given. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.